นโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะเมื่อเราเปลี่ยนไปเรื่อยๆเราเปลี่ยนไปเรื่อยๆเราเปลี่ยนไปเรื่อยๆเราเปลี่ยนไปเรื่อยๆเราเปลี่ยนไปเรื
were quite willing to give the money and supply everything for it, but he was quite reticent to get involved with all this. But then when his mother died, they had the cremation right in the centre of, of the monastery, and where the cremation was, he decided that he would build a new temple as a gesture of gratitude towards his mother. And But he didn't want just to build a temple there. First he wanted to build a hill to put the temple on top of because the forest is quite steamy and hot and he thought if we have a nice big hill which something about as high as this building here then build the temple on top of that the wind will blow through and it'll be nice and comfortable to sit in meditation there. So we used to work sometimes from after the meal maybe I guess by the time we'd cleaned up and gotten out washed our bowls maybe 10 o'clock in the morning they'd come down the meal line they'd give out a vitamin pill with the food and then you go out to work by about nine, ten o'clock and you work through until maybe six o'clock in the evening you get some vaguely warm strong sweet, sweet, sweet black coffee and then you work through until sometimes two o'clock the following morning carrying these buckets of earth to make a mountain for Ajahn Shah to build a temple on and when we were inside there's this big cavity wall and the monks were all inside running around shoveling, passing these bungis they're called, of dirt and, th- and other monks were pounding them and outside were all the nuns, the nuns were all outside throwing the dirt over and the monks were inside catching it and passing it and there was the foundations of the floor of the temple were above your head and you have to scoop like this and so you're running with these bungis and this is like hours every day and this was going on sometimes six, seven days a week and then eventually the nuns got put inside and we got put outside and so we'd throw them in and this would go on and, and yeah people did complain and Ajahn Chah would just say if you can't practice when you're busy you can't practice when things are quiet if you can't practice when it's inconvenient you can't practice when it's convenient so I think those little reminders of what practice really is about is very helpful not to get caught in our preferences our preferences are one thing but practice is not about just following our preferences. In fact, practice is about seeing through our preferences, surely. We would all like to have a routine that is thoroughly, thoroughly agreeable, not too busy, not too boring, not food, not too exciting, not too spicy, but not too plain, and the company charming, but not too exciting or interesting, and, and so on but that's our preferences life is not like that and so our training is how to practice with whatever's going on to have that as a principle this is practice whatever's happening this is practice and to counter the ideas we might have in our minds that oh if this wasn't going on I could practice and when that idea comes into our minds well that's if this wasn't going on I could follow my preferences that would be a better way of putting it but what we have in any given situation is the opportunity to feel the momentum of our wanting to follow our preferences and to practice with that to work with that when, when it's not how I want it to be the difficulty is when it's not how I want it to be then there's a reaction and, and we resist and we resent and and we go up into the heads and thinking how it could be otherwise and get lost in that. 
like today, people come to the monastery and they say, oh, it's okay to practice in the monastery. You know, you can talk about practice. You know, you're so good at talking about practice. But it's fine for you. You don't have anything to do. Sit around and be mindful and, and lovely, lovely monks. I mean, Ajahn Abhinando, I mean, how nice can you get? Tampunya, I mean, everybody loves Tampunya. I mean, a perfect exemplary monk. And all these nice junior monks always do what I ask them to do. And, yeah, that's what people think. <laughs> well, it's not like that, I tell you. I mean, today, after breakfast, I think it was uh, 7.30, first meeting was one of the trustees, just to talk about, there was a trust meeting today in the monastery, and so had to meet with the, the chairman of the trust to decide, well, how's the trust meeting going to go because we have to rearrange the schedule. So first we meet with that, uh, meet with the chairman of the trust and talk about the meeting, and then before the meeting starts, I need to, one of the trustees, who's very ill, wanted to talk about her funeral. And that's not just something that you take casually, so we've got to give that some quality attention. So she wanted everybody to be involved in planning her funeral, which is a, a rather wonderful thing. So we have 45 minutes to talk about her funeral before the, the trust meeting starts. And so then we have the trust meeting, and people, some people are there, some people aren't there, some turn up late. and. We deal with the normal trust business, there's always things to talk about and there's plenty of interesting things to talk about today like 4,000 leaflets just gone out to circulate it all around the entire Buddhist community with the wrong bank information on it. Good point there, very nice. What are we going to do with that? And then talking about running retreats, how are we going to run retreats in the monastery and what are we going to do when the monks get old or whatever. And all these issues that have to be dealt with and these are important issues and so we deal with these and people are in various states of mind and various states of health but we deal with it and then there's the trust meeting finishes and then there's the meal and after the meal well a Thai lady wants to talk about having finished her university degree and show me the photographs of her first job that she's had and how important and exciting that is and that's good so we, we do that and then a good friend wants to talk about his meditation practice. He's been having some very unsettling, um, powerful, powerful, energetic things happening, that, like Kundalini experiences that has been completely blowing him apart. And so we have some time talking about that before some friends who are visiting from London, they want to check in and catch up on things. And they've, they've arrived and they've brought their dog as well. And so we, we catch up for a half an hour before going over to talk with Anjan Abhinando and uh, one of the trustees about some standing order anomalies which have to be dealt with and so we have half an hour on that before dealing with a couple of phone calls and then sitting down with one of the other trustees to talk about the websites that she's going to take over and manage and so we deal with that and get back to my cutie just in time to see a message that says Ajahn Chandapalo is going to ring from Italy in 20 minutes time. And so before that phone call comes in, one of the other friends who's visiting comes to say goodbye and wants to know when we're going to meet next time. And so he leaves just in time for the phone. And we talk for another 45 or 50 minutes about you know, how we're going to manage the Elders' Council meeting and the problems that are going on in one of the other monasteries and the Anagarika that might or might not come to visit. And when that's finished, well, there's time to do an email to just check a newspaper article that's going to go out very soon advertising this monk who's coming to visit and give a talk at the Paisley University. And then there's time to sit down in the chair for a few minutes before having a hot cup of chocolate. And I think, well, that's been an interesting day.
And there's something in the mind that very easily could start resisting, because that's not the end of the day. I mean, there's still that's only that's only four o'clock or four thirty. But if we resist at that point, what's the consequences? And what is the nature of the resistance? What causes the resistance? And as it happened. I felt okay really, a few minutes sitting down, it was alright, and have a shower and do a little stretching, a little exercise and have a nice cup of hot chocolate and and then sit down and design a, a book cover for a collection of nice poems that uh, we might be putting out in the near future before coming over for evening puja. To be able to deal with these things and not get caught up in what is it that we get caught up in? Isn't there, we can get a momentum. We can get lost in my way. Instead of doing what we're doing, instead of talking to the person that we're talking to, listening to the person we're listening to, washing the cup that we're washing, instead of being where we are in the moment, we can be lost in this virtual reality that we create in our minds. And that's where we lose our energy. I can remember when I first came to live here 12 years ago and we had trust meetings. I always liked the trust meetings because all the trustees are very nice people, but I used to always have a headache at the end of a trust meeting. I look back now and I see that it was resistance. It was, it was because I was getting frustrated. People are not dealing with the business fast enough or, or they're dealing with it too fast or somebody's talking too much or somebody else is not talking enough and I'm not getting my way. Well, training, contrary to what we might like to think, is not about getting my way. When we, you know, the idea that if only it wasn't like this, if only somebody would give me some more attention, or if only would somebody would give me less attention, or if only. There's a story in the scriptures that I remember reading some years ago as a commentary to a verse in the Dhammapada about this uh, young monk called Anupabha. And Anupabha, before he was a monk, was the son of the local banker. He was a rich kid and he had everything except peace of mind. He was miserable, unhappy. Doesn't matter what he did, he couldn't, he didn't have any vitality and enthusiasm and he had absolutely everything and didn't lack anything on the material level and then one day he met one of the, the Buddha's disciples out on arms round and and was very inspired by the appearance of this guy and says well he looks pretty contented how can you be contented when you just got one old rag robe and in a bowl and somebody else's leftover food in it I mean how can you be content so he approached him and asked him started talking to him and, and 
the monk told him, he said, well, it's easy to con- cultivate well-being, it's easy to cultivate contentment if you know what to do with your mind. And the first thing to do is learn to be a bit more generous. Having affluent, having an affluent lifestyle, having everything, always me, 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 can make you very selfish. And if you learn to be a bit more generous, then actually it lightens the burden. And, and so he was inspired by this, and, and so he started practicing generosity. And maybe it improved things a little bit, but it still didn't give him contentment. So he, he started, he talked to this monk again, and, and so the monk gave him the teaching. I said, well, it's okay to be generous, but maybe there's a few things going on in your life where you're compromising integrity. You need to clean up your act a little bit. It might be one thing to be, you're making a few donations, but if you're going out to the disco in the evening and, and snorting cocaine or whatever it is you do, you need to clean up your act a little bit. And so he's practicing generosity, then he cleans up his, his act and he's keeping moral precepts and perhaps things get a little bit better, but still, he's still not really happy. And the monk said, well, maybe what you should do is just take this whole thing on very seriously and become a monk. Really uh, focus your whole life on investigation. And You're not married, you've got no family ties, you could become a bhikkhu. And focus your whole life on, on purifying the heart and realizing complete liberation. And that's where you get complete happiness. And this young man is totally inspired by this possibility. You know, he can see light at the end of the tunnel. He's getting going in the right direction and so he goes forth as a, as a monk and he's given this name Anupabha which means one gradually come or gradually gone forth he, he comes in stages you know developing generosity developing sila and so on and then he becomes a monk and of course initially when everybody becomes first ordained a monk or nun they're full of the flush of, of enthusiasm and everything's wonderful and, but after a while the old tendencies the old habits start to kick in and I'm not getting my way starts to become a problem again and the enthusiasm wears away and so the story goes that this monk just got very very quickly actually started losing faith and and there are descriptions about how he was he was noticed losing weight he was getting skinnier and skinnier and his complexion was going wretched and then he started coming out in sores and and the, uh, apparently some young novice noticed him standing there in one spot just sort of looking out to space, all his, his veins were poking out and a kind of pale green colour. That's the description that was given. And uh, So this novice asked him, what's your problem? And uh, he said, well, he said, I thought I, thought I was going forth to become a monk to find realisation and liberation and happiness. And all I've got is just all these rules and all these teachings and all these instructions that I just, just you know, I thought I was going to get freedom and space and all I've got is just this demands and expectations and, and it's all so cramped and crowded I don't have any space at all and basically I feel fed up and disillusioned with the whole thing so this young novice, the story goes, went to tell I think it was Vinamosari Putter or whoever the monk was who was his teacher and so he checked him out and said yeah, yeah I've completely lost, I'm just not interested anymore I don't believe in it, this whole thing of liberation it's, I thought I went forth to find some space and some freedom and I'm, just got all these rules to keep and all these teachings I'm supposed to be memorizing and you're telling me what to do all the time I don't have any space at all and I suppose Sariputta did his best to re-inspire him but that didn't work so he went to see the Lord Buddha and Lord Buddha said call him in, bring him to see me so the Buddha asked him and said well tell me Anupabha, what's your problem and is it true that you've lost faith and you've stopped your meditation and stopped your contemplations and support of this liberation and freedom and 
And Upavara said, yes, that's absolutely true. I'm completely fed up and disillusioned. I thought I was going forth for space and freedom and I, I don't have any space of freedom at all. All I've got is all these people telling me what to do all the time, expectations and pressure. And that's not what I was looking for. People giving me sutta discourses and vinaya discourses and abhidharma memorizing, goodness knows what else. I just don't have any space at all. And so the Buddha replied, he said, well, he said... Uh, that does sound like a lot when you put it that way, but you can make it a little. Instead of being caught up in this complexity of th- outer things, if you come back to one place, he said, can you do one thing? The Buddha asked him. Instead of doing all this myriad things, can you do just one thing? And Upava says, well, of course I can do one thing. It's all these other things that I'm asked to do I can't do. And the Buddha said, well, just watch your mind. Just stay at this point here. Just watch what's happening here, moment by moment by moment. Instead of going out into the complexity of all the other things, the next thing you think you have to be doing or the last thing you thought you were doing, doing just one thing at a time. And according to the story, this was enough for an Upabhar to to get the message and to realize the insight that freedom from the proliferation of doubt and confusion and he realized the the nature of the path from that point onwards. So in terms of training, I think it's good to remember that that woman is an image. I find it helpful to remember when there appears to be a complexity of things going on. There's just too much. I can't stand it. Well, what's too much? I mean, Washing a cup is not too much. I can wash a cup. Having a phone conversation with somebody. Even if in the middle of the phone conversation somebody comes in and asks you to do something else, say, excuse me, and turn to that person. We can actually do one thing. There's this idea about multitasking, which I quite like, actually. I think multitasking is quite nice to be able to do various things at once but not really doing various things at once. We're really only doing one thing at a time. It just means that our attention is very agile. Our body might be doing various things at once, but actually we're really only doing one thing at a time with our attention. And to develop that kind of attention that can move from object to object depending on what needs our attention. One of the great inspirations I had living with Ajahn Chah was he seemed to be able to do that. Whatever happened, somebody came along and wanted to talk about a building issue, he could talk to them about that. And then some young monk came along and wanted to talk about his practice, he could talk to them about that. Or if he needed to talk to the nuns about the dynamics of the nuns' community, he could turn to that. And that agility of attention, he wasn't locked into a particular momentum. So what is it again being locked into that particular momentum? As I was saying at the beginning of the meditation this evening as we started sitting, just to take time to disengage from the momentum of our worldliness of always trying to do things, trying to get what we want and get rid of what we don't want. To let go of that. If If we don't make the effort to disengage from that, then that can be governing all of our effort but if we just stop if we learn how to stop let go come back to this 
this moment, this place, doing this, sitting here, standing here, whatever it is, lying here, walking here, whatever it is we're doing to really do it. And if we make an effort to do that, well then, more and more we we see that momentum that causes us to get lost, the momentum of my way, the momentum of preferences. And we're interested to go against it. Of course, on one level, as, as I said, and as we all know, following our preferences is, on one level, is thoroughly agreeable. On one level, appears to be the way to get happy, to follow our preferences all the time. But in reality, we can't follow our preferences all the time because we, we live together. We've all got different preferences. We can't all get what we want at the same time. We can't control the environment past a certain limit. So there's no way we're going to be able to follow our preferences all the time. We can't get what we want. I think somebody else said that, isn't it? Can't always get what you want. I mean. But how do we disengage from trying to always get what we want? Well, as I said, if we can learn to stop, come back to this moment, and then feel that pull. I want, if only. And to name it, say, right, that's my way. The way of preferences. There's a wonderful treatise on practice that I've read many, many, many times and I, I love going back to and I'm sure we'll, I'll never tire going back to and that's it's called Sin Sin Ming or Trusting in the Heart by the the third Chinese patriarch, Master Sansun. And in there there's a stanza that says to set up like against dislike this is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of the way of things is not understood Peace of mind is disturbed to no avail. To set up like against dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of the way of things is not understood, peace of mind is disturbed to no avail. Now I like how they go together because it's not saying that you can never engage with liking or disliking. It's the way we relate to liking and disliking. Of course we've always got liking and disliking. But when we follow liking and disliking, the peace of mind is disturbed. There's activity. When we engage in these things, when we engage in motivated, our motivations for, for, for activity cause us to do things by way of body, speech and mind, then there is a disturbance. But that's part of life. We're not talking about just doing nothing. But the disturbance, peace of mind, is disturbed for no reason, for no point. There's no benefit from it. Peace of mind is disturbed to no avail when the deep meaning of, way, of the way of things is not understood. So to examine, to be willing to examine the way of things, the way of things, what, what is the nature of things? What, what happens when we follow liking? What happens when we follow disliking? To become interested in our preferences. Not to just judge our preferences and say, I shouldn't have liking or dislike. It's natural. Somebody praises us, of course, we like it. But what happens if we feed on that? And somebody praises us. If we think, oh, I shouldn't like being praised. Well, of course I like being praised. But if I say, I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have preferences. 
I try desperately to not like being praised. Well, it's just just become repressed, just just kid ourselves. Of course we like being praised, it feels good. But if we get lost in it, if we feed on it when somebody praises and tells us we're really wonderful, then what happens when they insult us? If we're feeding on praise, following our preferences for being liked, we can't help but get lost in our preference against being disliked. So we can't let go of insult and pain and humiliation if we're not willing to let go of liking, of pleasure that comes with praise. And so to become interested in these things, this is the way of things, this is the nature that by grasping at liking and disliking, we're not trying to get rid of liking and disliking. This body will always prefer certain kinds of climate, certain kinds of food because of the way it was brought up, the way it was conditioned, the way genetic programming of this organism. There are certain preferences there. The nature of this body is that it will never really like damp, damp environments. Now there are some people who just like damp environments. People who live in damp places and they like it and um, they're used to it. And this body doesn't like it. Or warm places. And some people really like warm places, some people really like cold places. Now, it's not necessarily just mental preference that says we like these things. They can be just mental preference, but they can also be a physical predisposition where it's more comfortable to have certain conditions. But it's the way we relate to those predispositions that makes the difference. So if we study these things, when I get what I want, I like it, I do. And it feels like this, no judgment. When the weather's good, conditions are comfortable, my body's healthy, I feel good. And it feels like this, this is what it feels like. And if we can be with that, well then when it's disagreeable, the company's not good, or things are too busy, or there's too much to do, and I'm not getting my way, oh this is what it's like, I don't like this, I really don't like this, I really don't like this, there's no doubt about it. I really don't like this, and this is what it feels like, it's just so. And there's not that but what if doesn't have to get born? If only we could get rid of this. And if only. You shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. So the preferences are also our teachers. And talking about the preferences and as being the things that obstruct us from being here and now, from being able to accord with the situation of our life moment by moment by moment. It's not the case that we're talking about getting rid of the preferences rather an encouragement to study our relationship with them so that we come to see for ourselves. This is the result of clinging to preferences. And in the seeing, in the moment of seeing, then we let go. And then in the letting go, then there's a benefit. You think, what a relief. I don't have to get what I want. It's actually very nice to be able to get what we don't want and to be okay with it. There's actually a pleasure Another sort of pleasure comes from having disagreeable conditions but not being defined by them. And so then there's a benefit and that's the inspiration that encourages us in our practice. Encourages us to practice being in the moment and remembering to come back to just doing what we're doing.
So whatever the situation we find ourselves in, when the, if we start to hear those voices in our mind and say, oh, if only this wasn't happening, I could practice. Or if only it wasn't like that. If only I wasn't in a bad mood, I could be practicing. We could counter it. Try countering it. Just one saying, this is practice. This is practice. This is the only practice, this moment. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Um,